Friday, 29th transition of the FCPA convention. Today, the fog episode. The international edition of the FCPA compliance report is sponsored by Advanced Compliance Solutions and through my consulting company, I'm proud to announce a new initiative, the Compliance Alliance, which is a three-step program to provide you and your team a background into compliance so you can consider how your products and services fits the needs of a compliance officer. It includes a boot camp for your employees around compliance, a 30-day podcast series sponsorship, and then in-person training on the messages and means to communicate your message. Interested parties should contact me, Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Today I have a roundtable discussion that I recorded at the FCCE European Compliance and Ethics Institute. I have Christy Grant Hart of Spark Consulting and How to Be a Wildly Effective Compliance Officer. Ruth Steinholtz from Arete Work with some very interesting thoughts on compliance as an outcome. And Jonathan Armstrong from the Quartery Firm. This uh, episode is a roundtable discussion and comes in a little bit longer than usual, just over uh, 50 minutes. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the International Edition of the FCPA Compliance Report. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to an International Edition of the FCPA Compliance Report. We are recording live today from the third day of the SCCE European Compliance and Ethics Institute. I have a distinguished panel for the international edition this week. We have Ruth Steinholtz of Art Artework. Arete Work. Christy Grant Hart of Spark Consulting and also how to be a wildly successful compliance officer. And Jonathan Armstrong from Cordery. Uh, we've been here at the conference this week and I asked them if they might uh, sit down and share with us some of uh, the things that are on their mind and some of the thoughts, uh, or rather some of the things that have stuck them, struck them from the conference. And so we're just going to have a, a nice conversation here with this panel. So uh, Ruth, you want to start us off and uh, tell us kind of what's on your mind? Sure. Thank you very much, uh, Tom. So I, the thing that's always on my mind uh, in these, when I'm at these conferences is that compliance for me is an outcome, not an approach. Um, and um, I'm really pleased to see that uh, so many people uh, here are talking about values, culture, um, and um, how to get to um, people doing the right thing, not just through processes. Now, there is quite a bit of focus um, in these meetings uh, for too many over the years on what are the compliance processes that need to be put in place, and I'm not in any way saying that they're not necessary. But I really think that if we want uh, people around the world to, um, to know what the right thing to do is, to do the right thing, we need to focus on what are our underlying values in our company, what's our culture like, and how are we making it uh, easy for people to do the right thing and helping them to do the right thing. Christy Grant Hart, what, uh, what's on your mind? What's on my mind? Um, this conference has been terrific. Um, it's, it's a much smaller version than, say, the big national ones. Uh, earlier in this week, I was at the Healthcare Compliance Association doing a keynote there, and there are 3,000 people, and it can feel like a sea. And while that's incredible to have the energy of 3,000 peers, the sort of 300 here make for a very intimate family feeling. Um, and one of the women I met here was You've from... You've got a big family. Okay. <laughs> it's a very big family. Well, lots of divorces. Um, <laughs> I thought you were. 
Irish. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, she's, she'd come to the uh, Las Vegas conference. She's only been in compliance for two years, and she said she felt lost, that it was just too much um, if you don't know people and you feel like you can't get a, a hold. But here, because it's a relatively small space, because everyone's in the same basic events, you end up seeing people six, seven, eight times over the course mm-hmm. of three days, and suddenly you have a relationship instead of a business card. And I think that this has been a tremendous thing. And, and the other thing I would say about what's on my mind is the absolute internationalization of compliance, um, seeing it not just being about the seven elements of the federal sentencing guidelines, but to see people working with how do we do this, like Ruth said, in a principles-based way, looking at the most strict act. What are we doing in France? How does the UK Bribery Act work? What is the modern slavery implications here? Um, and I think that's just incredibly exciting. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Armstrong. Uh, as ever, I agree with Ruth and Christy. Um, <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's one of the things I've learned by going to these events. Um, yeah, a couple of things I think strike me, and, and I think picking up your theme, really, I, I think I've been conscious of the fact for a while, and this has really accentuated it, that over-complexity in, in compliance is a disease. Mm. And I think, for example, let's take FCPA policies. Um, there is a real willingness of those who don't really know this topic to have an FCPA policy that tries to educate employees in Bangladesh about what a foreign public official is. So we spend four pages of the policy teaching them what a foreign public official is. Now, how does the Bangladeshi guy read that? He reads the fact that it's an instruction to bribe anyone who isn't a foreign public official. Because why otherwise would a US corporation go to such lengths to tell me who one is? So it doesn't become neutral. Whereas actually what the corporation meant to say is, you shall not bribe. And it doesn't matter, you know, it matters around the edges, but not that much, whether it's a public official or not. And I think we're seeing this over-complexity, frankly, by people who don't know the topic. And so, for example, Tom, we've talked about it, you've just raised it, the difference between the DOJ uh, guidance on the SCPA versus the MOJ guidance... um, is is wafer thin, yeah. and and the only difference is chronological. So mood in the middle because that's a bit more trendy than it was seven years ago, mm-hmm. and the actual substantive difference isn't much. But we can all be over complex about the fact that we're in 134 jurisdictions or whatever. Well, you know what? Most of them say paying bribes is a bad thing, uh, and and so I think what this conference has reinforced really, and I'm pleased about versus some of the projects where. Some of the projects we're seeing that we're taking over from other advisors have become so complex they're not going to get done. You know, GDPR, it would be one example. So our client last week, 63 actions in their plan. Wow. They have 409 days left. They have three people in the compliance team to execute it. It is not going to happen in time. And one of the heartening things I think I've seen from this conference is more focus on the practicality. Mm-hmm. We're not going to do everything. Let's do a proper risk assessment. Let's work out where the tigers are in the cupboard and deal with it. And, uh, and I think you know, that reinforces the, yeah. the points you've made as well, I think, yeah. that, um, that 
as I say, over-complexity, I think, is a disease, and I'm glad to see that it's less prevalent here than it is in other forums. I think, I mean, when I was uh, in-house counsel, I was general counsel for a, a multinational petrochemical company, and as general counsel, I didn't even read all of the policies. So how, <laughs> <Yeah>. could <I> expect, <laughs> how could I expect somebody... I've never heard anyone admit that. Uh, well actually, done. Years, yeah, yeah, yeah. Several years ago, but... I think the point is that it's so much easier when you're trying to get some basic concepts across to use um, values and, and talk to people about the context. Why is this important also? I think that was mentioned this morning, um, that if people understand why you're asking them to do something, they're far more likely to do it. Mm. Um, and I think that we, you know, as you say, why do we need to explain the difference between the, the UK Bribery Act and the FCPA? On, on bribery, that just don't pay a bribe. Now, I think that if, if compliance people and people working in ethics and compliance took some of Christie's advice about having a strategy, for example, um, and prioritizing, mm. then we wouldn't have this happening so much. And I think you made some really good points in your keynote yesterday about that. So we have, um, I actually, without disclosing any specific numbers, we have about 125 years of legal experience and talent at this table. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> uh, although the majority might be on this side. Of the <laughs> you um, can't see which yes. side we're on. That's <laughs> Nevertheless, yes. uh, uh, now that is not all compliance. We have not all been in compliance for that uh, length of time. Nevertheless, uh, that amount of uh, compliance seniority also is uh, quite high. And for this particular mm. group. So um, what are some of the things that uh, uh, really uh, this conference brought home to you guys, or as we would say in Texas, you all, <laughs> on um, where the state of compliance is in 2017? Um, I really hope that it's going the way that Jonathan just described. I, I tend to think it's probably not. Um, I, I think <laughs> it is at this conference. I don't think it is in the world generally. at large. I think, I think over-complexity is... Is a curse, and, and, and I think it's there in the world. Yeah, and I think that um, I agree with you. The, our um, my company's mantra is pragmatic, pro-business, proportionate. Like that's the kind of advice we want to give, and it's such a difference from I think the way that a lot of practitioners approach it, which is um, you'll never understand it. I'm far too advanced for you to ever understand it, so I'm going to use huge words that don't mean anything, and you know, nitpick, sign, you know, uh, footnote six, line eight, and you're just like, guys, seriously, we don't need to do that. Um, or in a in Las Vegas, uh, the, the broadcat Ricardo did this great thing on training, and he said, their jobs, the employees' jobs, is not to be risk managers. You mm. tell them what they need to do, and they'll do it. You know, don't yeah, try yeah. to educate them about what you do. And it was such a like mind shift for me. I went, wow, you're right. Their job isn't to understand the risk. Mm -hmm. My job mm -hmm. is to tell them what to do about it mm -hmm. and trust that they will yeah. or follow up to find out that they did. Um, so I don't know. I think that that is a, a beautiful thing, particularly, I think it's more in Europe that they understand that because the laws are, and the languages are different. So you immediately have this problem that you've got all these different jurisdictions, all these different regulators. How do we synchronize this thing in a multinational? And I think there's more of an immediate uh, goal of, okay, what's the common ground? How do we make this applicable everywhere? Uh, and I, I'd never thought about that before, but I think that's probably where it comes from. Yeah, I, th I think that's interesting. I think from my point of view, I think the one thing that I've been really conscious of recently is how 
you know, big corporations almost do nothing. <laughs> um, by which I mean that almost everything is outsourced. Mm. The, the definition of what's core business to a corporation, I think, has decreased and decreased even over the last five years. Yes. So if you say to any multinational corporation, you know, tell me who holds your HR records, mm. they'll give you the name of a vendor, not an individual. Somebody in India. Um, yeah. If you say who, who sorts out your travel, you know, five years ago, it might have been we have a travel desk and Doris <laughs> is, the, is the manager. And now it's like, well, that's outsourced to X, Y and Z vendor. And why does that matter? Because they care less about your compliance than you do. And actually, what you've outsourced is compliance. And your reputation. Uh, and your reputation and all of that thing. In GDPR, you've outsourced you know, 4% of your turnover mm -hmm. to people like that if they're handling your personal data. Mm -hmm. And the difficulty is, because each of those incremental services, because it's non-core business, it doesn't matter that much, so let's just sign a deal, let's get rid of it. The person who knew about that, in my example, the Doris, isn't there to supervise because, right. you know, her role disappeared as part of the outsourcing. So now you're left with the Manila version of Doris who you don't control. Mm -hmm. and, and this is, again, I think, where over-complexity gets it. So your chances of persuading somebody to do the right thing who you don't own, mm -hmm. you, can't, you can't use stick with them. You can only use carrot. Uh, and so you've got to be much better at expressing what your values are really quickly. And, and, and I think it's interesting that we've seen a trend from regulators looking particularly at that and looking at uh, temporary workers within an organisation. You've also seen things like you know, Romanian gangs, other gangs are available. Um, use temp workers. Let's not try and hack into the business because that actually takes a little bit of effort, not a great deal with most take some effort. But if it's a financial services institution, we know that they're going to need uh, a couple of temp workers over the, over the summer to cover for holidays. So isn't it easy just to bring four of the gang over from Romania on EasyJet, uh, get them a job in the bank for a week uh, to cover somebody's desk, and then we can spend the whole week uploading data rather than, uh, rather than uh, y you know, use that. We can use the week productively, if you like. Um, and, so, and so... And get paid five quid an hour. It's excellent. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so just as big corporations are following this outsourcing model, well, the gangs that are trying to attack us are following an insourcing model. And, uh, and well, so... You're speaking to third-party risk and how do you right. manage that? Well, third and fourth and fifth. And, and, and I think this is the thing that we've constantly concentrated a lot on third-party risk and, and you know let's take for example helplines something I'm quite familiar with so we look at, at who our helpline provider is and we ask them to translate stuff into 26 languages when they get a call they'll take a call in 26 languages who is the person mm -hmm. who speaks Portuguese um, well actually with a lot of helpline providers that is on an hourly rate to a home worker so that person is getting let's say $15 for translating that call the information about that whistleblowing complaint you know look at the Rolls-Royce case that could be a two billion dollar call we're giving to somebody for $15. We can do all the due diligence we like against the helpline provider, but are we looking at where those calls are routing? Mm -hmm. I know we're not, because I've done it with one vendor, and I was told that I was the first person that had ever asked. Mm -hmm. And isn't that shameful that we don't know even something as simple as a call 
where is that call being answered and who is translating it when they ask to speak in their home language mm-hmm. uh, when the value of that call is so huge yeah. so me- sorry hobby horse <laughs> <laughs> hobby horse disclosure yeah. <laughs> so Ruth you write and think and talk a lot about ethics but also values mm-hmm. what do you see seeing around kind of the concept of values and being able to inculcate those in corporations and are the corporations receptive to the message you and others are talking about? I think they're increasingly receptive to that message. Um, in all of the companies that I've worked with, really since um, since Borealis, values have been the basis of the work that I've been doing. And um, it, it has enabled us to communicate with people at all levels of the company, and including people, for example, maybe who are the linesman on a cruise ship or uh, somebody doing a, a fairly um, menial job, so to speak. But everyone has values, and you can talk to everyone about values in any language. But I think uh, one of the things that's kind of new um, and which is important is that um, Regulators have recognized that culture and values are important, but there's a disconnect because most people, like myself, come from the legal profession, but unlike myself, most of them have retrained themselves in how do you measure culture and how, mm. what is, you know, because you need to understand your culture and what whether you have the right values, are the values that you have on the poster on the wall actually in your company, are they permeating the company, what do your employees think your culture is? And I think that there are two things. One is that we tend to work in silos. So we're either in the legal department or the compliance department. We're not communicating or working together with the HR people. Um, Or um, we're not really making sure that we have the expertise to think about the culture. And it's not about asking a lot of really complicated questions. It's just trying to understand what the values are. But I think more and more companies are working with values and seeing values as a way to get a kind of a consistency mm-hmm. of culture. Now, uh, I just recently looked at, for example, a lot of com- companies in the UK uh, where I live have respect and integrity as two of their values. But I went then and, and drilled down to see how they defined respect and integrity. And each one defines it differently, but for how it works in their culture. So it's the definition of the values, and it's the whole exercise of discovering the values and identifying them properly, and then figuring out what do they mean for us, which is so important, which is so helpful for the work that we do, because it starts to get people thinking, well, you know, why is respect important? What does integrity mean to us in this company, et cetera? And I think it's the involvement of all these people in your organization, whether uh, they're because they're ethics ambassadors or just normal employees who whose feedback you get that starts to make this conversation happen in companies. And, and, and it, it goes to then this point that Paul Fiorello was making about engagement. Really, the most important thing is employee engagement. So we don't want to disengage them with too much compliance, uh, because not only will that hurt ethical behavior, but it'll hurt our uh, company results. But we want to get them involved, actively engaged, where they're going to be using their, their discretionary activity, but also they're going to care when someone's trying to screw up their company and they're going to speak up. Any thoughts on that? I, well, I concur. Is that a message that you think resonates with the clients that you have at Spark Consulting? Um, I think that values-driven and culture-driven conversations are the most important ones. And if you're just looking at 
the policy or the procedure, then you're getting it wrong. Um, one of the most interesting things I've seen now, because um, I was a chief compliance officer and now being um, working with multiple companies, is that there's such a difference in the actual commitment. Um, like if you're putting in a due diligence project procedure, which I've done at a couple of different places, some of them they're like, oh, we can't ask them. The managers aren't going to ask anyone. To, they don't have to do it. And you're like, guys, this is never going to work. This is never going to work. Like you need to have a procedure that has teeth or it's not going to work. It can be beautiful on paper. Um, and it's one of those things where um, what the commitment really is starts to show very quickly. Um, and I think that uh, the actual commitment level of people to values, to culture, to ethics, to compliance. I'm a bit more on the team compliance than Ruth is because, you know, my company's called compliance consulting, right? Um, but I think that, uh, that, that there is a, a very strong understanding that culture and values are so critical. Um, at the HCCA, someone brought up uh, a CFO survey where they said that 91% of CFOs said that culture is the most important thing. And truly, I just thought, well, who are the 9% that just yeah. don't get it? You know, This is the only thing, ultimately, that matters because compliance by itself doesn't work. Can I just say one thing to that? So I, I am, we are slightly on, on different parts of the spectrum, so to speak. I think we both agree that both sides are important. But the way I would tackle that issue about due diligence is to make sure people understand why do we have a due diligence policy, how will it help your business, and make sure that the due diligence procedure is incorporated into whatever other business process that they have. And I'm sure you would do the same. Yeah. Um, and so that way, A, it becomes just part of how we do things around here about engaging third parties, and it's not seen as an extra thing, but also they understand that it's a positive thing for their bottom line. So but you've got John, to look... Well, I, would, I would just introduce or, or preface the question to you with, you typically are dealing with lawyers. Yeah. Work for a law firm or partner in a law firm, and um, you're typically engaged by lawyers and you're dealing with legal issues. Mm -hmm. So do these types of concepts resonate, not, not with the work you do, but with the clients you have and that message? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think that's one of the shifts that we've seen maybe since we've started, that I think we're not exclusively engaged by lawyers anymore. We are engaged by compliance professionals, sometimes by chief information security officers. I think that's rising, particularly in areas like GDPR. And I think that... Um, I, I agree with things like the holistic elements of, of due diligence. You know, for example, let's look at, I can think of one, probably best not to, to name it, but I can think of a US case uh, uh, involving a, a clothing chain where there's huge kickbacks. So how do you make the margin in low-value fashion for huge mm -hmm. kickbacks? Right. By employing slaves. So sometimes we look in silos that the modern slavery team doesn't talk to the bribery yeah. team and actually then it's also relating to business continuity as well mm -hmm. because if they're held in really bad conditions then there, there might be a, you know so we've got to look holistically at who do we want to deal with and then everything else follows in terms of due diligence etc so I think I don't think we've seen that much of a difference between legal clients and and sort of compliance officer clients. I think obviously the distinctions <coughs> excuse me, are a little blurred because some of the compliance officers were lawyers. Right. Um, but I think that we're seeing this, this almost move towards compliance being an independent profession. And I'd say that's been accentuated in the three, four years I've been involved in SCCE. You know, it was almost like, um, 
you know, what is your day job type conversations um, three or four years ago, my perception is. And now it's I do compliance and my background was. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I think that's been marked, the, the sort of, you know, compliance rising as a profession. And obviously that's down in part to this conference and, you know, Roy and Adam and Lisa and... Uh, um, Courtney and I'm sure I've missed many others who are putting this type of event together and saying actually there's more that unifies you than divides you. Can I, um, I think that one of the most interesting things from my perspective is um, I've been doing a lot of the modern slavery statement work and actually watching compliance be a part of everything else because compliance can't do that by itself. It has to work with procurement. It has to work with HR. It has to work with legal. There's so many elements to do it properly and I think that from my perspective, in good compliance programs, they are so much more integrated with the business than previously I experienced, where it's like, I'm compliance, I sit over there in the room, and you know nobody ever comes to see me, and I'm sad, right? But now it's like, with some of this particular um, like GDPR or the modern slavery stuff, you have to get out into the business, or you can't even get the information to figure out what to do next. And I think that's a really positive trend, that we are becoming part of the business team, and that's where we absolutely need to be. Yes, yeah. So I'll take it to the to the extreme as I see it, which is at the other end of the extreme is I think it should be part of the business. I don't believe in large separate compliance departments, although I think they're doing a lot of good work. But personally, I think the risk and the responsibility should stay in the same place, and that people working in ethics and compliance should be facilitators, should be doing some of the more complicated work where you absolutely have to be an expert in it. But I like to see that you involve your business people and that it's their responsibility, so it's integrated as much as possible into uh, the your people's daily work, which is why I prefer to use ethics ambassadors who are employees in the company doing other jobs who do a bit of this. So they're trained the trainers, they're uh, people that will help you in n- numerous ways. But I just think that it, it, it's being being an, a lawyer. I think the danger for compliance departments is the same that it was for in-house legal departments 20 years ago or 10 years ago, which is you get too big, they outsource you. So I think it's important that we make this an integral part of the business and we keep our ethics and compliance departments relatively small and keep the responsibility where the risk is. So let me pick up on something you said, uh, and it, it is, of course, broader implications for all, all of us, but you talked about the regulator's role in this. Uh, so typically, uh, Christy or Jonathan might look to a UK regulator or US regulator uh, around the Bribery Act or the FCPA, but you're looking at values and ethics. Mm. How are you, uh, how, first of all, how is that message resonating with regulators? And then two, I know you're working on a project mm. to help educate them. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, so the first part of your question, um, you know, I'm looking at the guidance for the Bribery Act or the, as, just as well as, as they are, and obviously I do believe that you have to have the kind of requirements that are, that are considered quote-unquote compliance, part of a compliance program. Um, but the regulators, I think, are increasingly open to this conversation, which is that companies who really seriously work on having an ethical culture or ethical business practices, where this project that you alluded to we're talking about, those companies should be treated differently by regulators. For in the in the sense of, for example, food or off uh, water regulation and energy and things like this, companies that are really trying to do the right thing in, uh, should be inspected less, uh, have a more cooperative, without things getting too close so that you have conflict of interest, but you, we should all be working toward the same goal, which is that companies 
are regulated ethically, so the regulators themselves need to be fair, uh, and the companies that are really working on their culture and making sure that they have all the compliance bells and whistles that they need to. If something goes wrong, you treat them a bit differently. You try to work with them to understand why it went wrong um, and how do you fix it. Companies that either don't care or are actively doing bad things, well, you still, they need to be accountable. But the, 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 the reason for this um, is that deterrence has been proven not to work. So punishment and deterrence as a, as a way of getting people to do the right thing has been academically proven not to work. There's a book called uh, Law and Corporate Behavior by, if I can make a little thing, by P Professor Chris Hodges from Oxford, where he goes through all of the evidence about deterrence and he says, it doesn't work. So what do we need to do? We need to make sure people are, it's more positive, it's more the carrot than the stick. Um, and if a regulator's time is freed up from not having to go and inspect a company that's actually working really hard to do the right thing, they can concentrate on the real wrongdoers also. So there's a benefit for the regulators. But it's a, this concept of ethical business regulation is really taking off. There are a lot of UK regulators. Scotland has actually printed it, uh, discussed it in some of their official publications. Um, and uh, certainly other regulators around the world are beginning to listen very carefully to this whole idea. But the cynical lawyer in me asks you an obvious uh, question. Yeah, so how do you distinguish between those companies that are good at dressing really the window? I'm that you asked that question, because yeah. actually what, that's one of, the, one of the things that we're looking at now is, so the important thing is, um, and I'm sure you all agree with this, that this should not become a tick-the-box exercise. So if you otherwise you just end up back in the same place you started with compliance. We all mm -hmm. know that tick-the-box compliance. So there can never just be one way that a company would be able to show that they are behaving ethically. There's a whole panoply of ways in which companies can show that they're behaving ethically, including um, having adequate procedures to prevent bribery, including complying with all of the U.S. Um, sort of sentencing guidelines, guidance, etc. But also in being able to talk to the regulators about what is our culture with some evidence of what that culture is. But, but, sorry. Yes. So, um, so things like Enron, for example. I, you know, obviously back in the day made quite a study of Enron. This was a business, and you'll be more familiar with it than I am, Tom, probably. Uh, I'm from Houston. I own Enron. <laughs> Favorite topic. You on the stock? I did. <laughs> but like eBay, for example, had had golf balls from the Enron employee golf day or whatever, right. and they said integrity matters all right. over them. So you know, you would you could provide an eBay store no, full what, of evidence. That's right, and that's why I don't. That's why I'm not. Why compliance to me isn't the be all and end all of everything? Because okay. if you had gone in and done a cultural values assessment of Enron at the time, Barrett Value Center has a really good tool for this, you would have seen the real culture. You would not have seen the posters on the wall and the, and the code of conduct, and you would have seen the, the true culture. You would have seen a lot of dysfunction in that culture, people feeling they're under a lot of pressure, et cetera, and that would have t given you a lot of evidence that you could use as a regulator to say, wait a minute, there's something you know rotten here. Um, and does that take less effort or more effort than less. a traditional regulatory investigation? Well, Finding out what the culture really is doesn't actually take a lot of effort, if, for example, using this tool. In some ways, it's harder because, uh, I mean, this whole approach in some ways is harder because it actually requires people to think. 
and to look at things in a, in a and not just say, okay, they got a code of conduct, tick, they've got mm -hmm. a due diligence pro um, procedure, tick. It requires them to talk to people, to, to look at things like cultural values assessments, to have you know anecdotal evidence, and to um, look at the quality of the leadership. Because at the end of the day, the culture is the is really the um, result of the leader's values and maybe previous leader's values, depending on how long the current leaders have been in place. So it does, in some ways, require um, a more engaged discussion. But the idea in ethical business practice or ethical business regulation is the company needs to come forward with this, you know, with a, a suite of indicators, evidence of all kinds, to the regulator and be able to say. Now, I once heard, I forget who, a former regulator, I think at the time, say, you know, I can look at all these things, but I really want to look the CEO in the eyes and say, is this person really committed to this, or is he just blowing smoke and, you know. Or she. Or she, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, in a way, it, and this is why a lot of people are afraid of this, because, you know, it's subjective, uh, but there are some objective measures that you can have of culture. Um, but also, frankly, at the end of the day, it's far more meaningful than, you know, do I have a code of conduct, or as you say, golf balls with... Integrity Matters written There up. were great golf balls. <laughs> Do you have some, Tom? Do you have them in your office? Not anymore. <laughs> I tried to buy the Crooked E. <laughs> uh, uh, Andy Fastow, the uh, mm. disgraced former CFO, was going to speak to a uh, group at, uh, I belong to at the Houston Bar Association, and I led such a revolt about having him speak that they ended up canceling and that was my one proud event around him. So I didn't want even, we, we were only going to give him a free lunch. I said, no, no, I don't want him to have anything from us. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so let me, uh, let me tell you my, what had stuck, struck me the most about this conference because it's a little bit different direction, but I'm sure you all would have uh, some pretty good thoughts on it. It's the following, and I've got to preface it with going back uh, to after the presidential election in the United States, I was stunned to get calls and emails from people who basically said, tell us we're going to have a profession after January 20th. Yes. And uh, I talked a lot of people off the ledge. Uh, that led Jonathan and I on another podcast we are uh, engaged with to have a whole podcast series around um, why compliance would still exist under a Trump administration. Uh, of course, it, it turns out it still exists. The, the Department of Justice and Securities and Exchange Commission have both said uh, they're going to aggressively enforce uh, U.S. laws. I say all that as a preface, preface to... I still had no clue what was going to happen in the United Kingdom after uh, Brexit. Mm. And our first panel that Jonathan uh, facilitated really struck me about Brexit uh, because it really talked about the commercial and transactional, uh, uh, what it might mean for, in those two areas. And, it, and really, the, the panelists really helped calm me down because here we are with these, still these headlines, you know, Margaret Thatcher, ghost of Margaret Thatcher getting ready for yeah. war with Spain over Gibraltar. And, but uh, the panelists really said, look, we have uh, UK laws. They're still going to be in effect. Certainly, the UK Bribery Act will still be in effect. We have the Serious Fraud Office. Uh, we have European laws uh, that uh, will also be in effect. What we will not have is a European Court of Justice over us. We will be enforcing our own laws. We will be forcing uh, continent-wide laws as appropriate. Basically, the message was things are going to continue the same. We're going to have more local control in Britain. 
Brit, uh, EU wants a divorce, Britain wants a trade deal, they're going to work something out. So just calm down. And so that was a great message and a really yeah. a very yeah. good message for me. And around compliance, it's basically that compliance has become, as everyone here has said, part of the business fabric now. And in addition to the regulatory schemes that we all work under, uh, now we have France, Brazil, and a new, uh, Spain, a number of other countries also have regulatory schemes. It really wouldn't matter if the FCPA in the United States went away, because every other country that didn't work anywhere else in the world would be under some type of uh, anti-corruption, uh, anti-bribery regulatory scheme. Yeah. So I just wondered uh, if you guys might have some thoughts about that as well, because that's really what struck me and, frankly, was the most important message for me to hear at this conference. I mean, I personally think the U.S. does matter, and I think if the FCPA enforcement dropped, then that would have a significant effect, because when you look at the league tables, I haven't looked at them in the last couple of months, but, you know, there's a country mile of clear water between U.S. enforcement activity versus U.K. second, Canada third. And um, and I think, I think I'm right in saying, last time I looked, the combined enforcement activity of every other country in the world is not equal to that of the U.S. So is that measured by fines or a number of cases? It's measured by, I think it's on both indicators, to be honest. I think last time I looked, there was... Uh, a rough parallel between volume and um, a, a, and level of fines. Mm -hmm. So I think U.S. A, a less active U.S. is a worry. I, I, but on the plus side, I think there's a lot uh, a, a lot of countries that you might not have assumed were cooperating are. Right. You know, I, I believe I'm right in saying that every UK case the SFO has credited the Swiss authorities yeah. with doing the you know the find the money type yeah. type piece yeah. so um, I, I think that's I think that is right I think what the panel I'm glad you like the, the panel I'll take that as a as a thing that you uh, you know we worked we had a panel for various reasons that we put together in in three days and and I think it did work and I think that was the message that we were trying to get across really that the Brexit or no Brexit bribing people still bad mm -hmm. and I think the what I think we'll see is go to things like uh, core values more as well mm -hmm. and that's the only r really way that the multinationals can operate operate and as I said you're not going to teach SCPA and bribery act and Brazilian Clean Company Act and the Swedish legislation and Sapander to a Bangladeshi employee mm -hmm. all you can realistically teach him is stop bribing people um, I wasn't quite as reassured by the Brexit side of things, but that's because I, I'm a Brit and I'm, I'm apoplectic about Brexit. Um, and I'm hoping that somehow or other it will be stopped. Um, I think that one of the, the messages uh, from the panel and, um, and in general is that we really don't know what's going to happen with Brexit. On the legal side, one thing we do know, I think, is that if Brexit happens, the UK is going to have to have exactly the same laws that it has now, mm -hmm. because otherwise it won't be able to trade with the right. EU. So the point but, is, why are we doing this? But anyway, that, mm -hmm. I won't get into that. Another but Ruth, I, I, I got a call from a client last week. They'd been to an event that was led by, a, and I'm using inverted commas for the benefit of the tape, uh, <laughs> an expert, led by an expert on how to handle data. And somebody said, apparently, to this expert at the end of the uh, at the end of his talk, "You've gone, I think, ninety minutes on data protection, and you've not mentioned GDPR." And the expert said, "That's because it won't apply because of Brexit." 
And you're insane. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and my client's ringing me to say, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this, yeah. but but what's your thoughts? And I was like, beyond crazy. You know, you have whatever 400 days left. You're going to sort of stop doing what you're doing, and then eventually in let's say a hundred days time you're going to think oh that was a pretty dumb idea meantime you've lost 25% of your yeah, time and to the prepare. fact is if, if they're handling any European data anyway which let's face well, exactly. it what UK company doesn't have any European data yeah, yeah, yeah. it's insane mm-hmm. yeah and even if they're not then they, yeah the whole thing is just lunacy so, so I think what the panel was trying to say is I agree with you it's uncertain I think you know without disclosing secrets I know that at least 75% of our panel are in the same camp as you politically that we hope Brexit isn't going to happen. But I think we had to force ourselves, and hopefully you didn't read that in the panel, we had to force ourselves to get over that bit and, and say, we're now dealing with it. How are we going to deal with it? I think it? we have to do things in parallel. First of all, I agree with you. We have to act as if it's going to happen. And second, that we have to not give up on the possibility that it isn't. Mm-hmm. Because if we give up on the possibility that it isn't, we won't continue to work toward it not happening. But I also totally agree with you. We can't just put our heads in the sand because it might happen. Well, it's the Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. About <laughs> <laughs> Brexit? Yeah. Or this general topic of compliance at Brexit and what your clients are telling you or asking you about what does all this mean going forward? Genuinely, I, I think that we should all behave as if it's not going to change anything because I, I do think it will happen, although I did vote remain. Um, and I think that th- that ship sailed and that we just need to get on with it. But I, I think from a commercial perspective, UK trades with the, U- with the EU all the time. This We have to follow those same trade rules and those same, you know, the, the quality requirements and the data requirements and everything else to do the trade. So to me, it doesn't shift anything very dramatically, if at all. I would say it doesn't change how we approach any of this. And for multinationals, you're in the EU, you're in the UK, you're in the US. It's all one program. How are we going to manage it? So for me, I, I see less than zero response to it from how do we change things because I'm still advising people on GDPR I'm still mm-hmm. advising on modern slavery we're still doing the UK bribery act stuff it, mm-hmm. it just it's a glo- for me it's a global world my, my clients yeah. are I think all multinationals and you can't do it by region it's not possible I mean you can but it's a bad idea you know one program makes a lot more sense and that's how I approach it yeah so we've got about 10 minutes left, and I was wondering mm-hmm. if uh, you might, uh, uh, I know uh, at least two of, of, of you all uh, uh, have publications coming out. Mm-hmm. So if maybe you could give us a little pr- a preview teaser of that. I'm not quite sure what uh, you might have coming out, but I'm sure quarterly compliance is coming yeah. up with something. Can I plug my holiday light? And you- <laughs> Even better. I would like very much to think about holidays. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so I had the great pleasure of doing the keynote um, at this conference on strategy. Um, so I have a, a, a book coming out on May 9th called the Wildly Strategic Compliance Officer oh, wow. Workbook. And it is all about very, it, it's quizzes, it's exercises, it's templates about how to put strategy into your program. And it really came from so many of my clients going, all I do is fight fires. Mm-hmm. I never have any time. 
to do anything else. And my experience with boards is if you just show up at the end of the year and you say, what did you do? Oh my gosh. Well, I, I got through all the fires. Congratulations. We don't think you did anything. Yeah. And so having um, a real understanding of which risks are mine, which risks are shared, like we were talking about the modern slavery and GDPR. If you don't have a good delineation of that, you're in real trouble. If you don't have a three-year plan that you have the board or your C-suites buy-in, you're in real trouble because you don't know how to get your map. You don't know how to walk from Munich to Milan if you don't have a map, right? So um, it's really all about creating strategy so that they can have wins and a specific way. There's not only one way to do it, but I know that the way I've done it myself and with other companies works. So I decided to make that into a workbook and, and have it disseminated so people could really see what it's about. So it'll be on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, in bookstores, and um, you can get more information at compliancechristy.com. Right, so I'm uh, working on uh, a book called Ethical Business Regulation, a Behavioral and Ethical Approach to Compliance and Enforcement. Uh, and my the main author, I would say, I consider myself a secondary co-author, is Christopher Hodges. He's a professor of justice systems and a fellow of Wolfson College at Oxford University, and uh, runs the Center for Socio-Legal Studies, and he is a, quite a distinguished, he's a former partner of Cameron McKenna, McKenna & Co. Um, and he's written on many topics, product liability, um, ombudsman, etc. And um, so his first book on this topic, called Law and Corporate Behavior, was 800 pages long. And we saw, I think this morning, mm -hmm. Paul said, people have a shorter attention span than fish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's very so, disconcerting. Yeah, exactly, and I'm, he's not wrong about that. Um, so the idea is to, we're working on a, a much shorter version of the book, which is aimed at both regulators, so that they understand the concept of ethical business regulation and why, uh, what is involved. And it, it, a lot of his, his original thoughts on this come from uh, looking at the aviation industry where promoting no-blame cultures, or what they call just cultures, where people don't have to be afraid to say when they've made a mistake so that you can actually work on the root causes and fix it. Uh, comes from you know from him looking at those kinds of um, regulatory regimes and realizing that they were working better. Um, so so part of it, as I say, is, is really aimed at regulators. Um, and it's still scholarly in nature, but um, we're really trying to make it more readable. And uh, so people like ourselves or even um, CEOs or um, general counsel, et cetera, would have a look at it. And we do make an effort to talk about what we think ethical business practice might consist of in there as well. But again, you know, this isn't about creating a, a standard or a checklist. It's really about getting the concepts across and um, helping both companies and um, and regulators realize you know, how this could help them. And, and just as a sideline, I'm also now doing a project with the UK government to, to pilot some of these concepts with a couple of regulators and some companies that are regulated by those regulators. And we're going to look at the culture of both of them and, and see how this might work. So maybe in a year's time, there'll be some results from those pilots uh, that we can talk about next. <laughs> or oh, less than a year. Your holiday. Visit Cornwall. I guess as a as a as you know, Tom, as a millennial myself. Um, <laughs> they can't see you. Uh, for the for the benefit of the tape, I look about twenty three. Um, the. Um, uh, I, I'm, I, I wrote a book one time. I, I wrote a little bit of, of uh, your Trump book, which I was very happy to. Um, for me, uh, 
one of the things we've been concentrating on is short bursts. So yeah, I mean, Cordery has a lot of information publicly mm-hmm. available, both we in terms do. of white papers, client alerts, and uh, uh, podcast video and videos. Yeah, the, yeah. the films. I think uh, I think we're most proud of. Uh, you know, GDPR is eighty-eight pages long. We've tried to explain it in just under two minutes. Um, have we gone through all eighty-eight pages? No, we haven't. But have we given a flavour? Yes, we have. And the other thing we've done with that, which I think is one of our most bizarre projects, is we have looked at in, uh, at linking to that content from photocopier lids. So we have a client who is trying to look at where do I educate people? Where can I have <laughs> compliance time with them? And one of the uh, areas when you look through the business is people stand and wait for their photocopying. Yeah. So let's use that time. Let's change the lid of the photocopier, try and get them interested in GDPR, try and get them into a two-minute film, then try and get them into FAQs. So I guess a little bit like, I don't know, the Medellin cartel, where you try and get somebody hooked on something well so we've learned from uh, diverse organizations on how to uh, how to feed past, messages you've past Peruvian gangs or devolved into the exactly. cartel. Yeah. I think the Medellin cartel were probably trying to teach compliance and they just got diverted <laughs> along the way but uh well, it was more business process. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they had their values, though. They knew exactly what they were doing. <laughs> so, uh, kind of to end up, I was wondering if uh, everyone could go around and uh, uh, give their company name and uh, if uh, they could give out an email address. So, if anyone wanted to contact them directly. And, Jonathan, you want to start with uh, the fact that you work at Cordery Compliance? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Jonathan Armstrong from Cordery, jonathan.armstrong at cordrycompliance.com. Excellent. Um, so I'm Christy Grant Hart, and it's uh, Christy GH, because frankly, that's just too much with the hyphens and all. So Christy GH at sparkcompliance.com. And I'm Ruth Steinholz at Arete Work, which is spelled A R E T E W O R K. It's Greek for um, excellence, being the best you can be, and, um, and ethics. And my email address is ruth at aretework.com. Well, guys uh, and gals, this has been great. I uh, hope we have the chance uh, to do it again. Thank you all very much. Thanks, Pleasure. Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, the International Edition, coming to you live from Prague. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate this podcast as it would help our rankings and certainly get the word out to this most unique podcast in the compliance community, an international-focused podcast, the only one around. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much, and I hope you'll join me for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, the International Edition. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.